So Money Episode 570, Emily Guy Birkin, author of End Financial Stress Now. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Do your finances stress you out? Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Shrabi. I suppose if they do, in some way, that's why you're here. And no doubt, money is one of the top leading causes of stress in our lives. And our guest today wants to address it head on. Personal finance writer Emily Guy Birkin is here and she's got a new book called End Financial Stress Now, Steps You Can Take to Improve Your Financial Outlook. And very action-driven, whether you're stressed out by your debt, your lack of retirement savings or insufficient income or all of the above, Emily is here armed with practical and actionable advice for all of us to help us improve our money lives. Here's Emily. Emily Guy Birkin, welcome to So Money. I don't know why it's taking me till now to have you on the show. We're pals. We go back to FinCon. You're just a prolific writer, and I'm excited to share with everybody now your latest book, End Financial Stress Now. Yes, please. Welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Well, your new book is, is so timely. It is important now because we have a lot of uncertainty in the market and with the new presidency and a lot of economic changes that will maybe happening down the line. When you talk about financial stress now, what are the hot stress issues that you're tackling? Well, um, one thing that uh, I wanted to do with this book was um, uh, talk about financial stress at every level of income, um, because a lot of times uh, the the sorts of books that uh, that you see in the personal finance realm are very clearly geared towards um, you know the two incomes or um, you know higher income families who are just having trouble uh, figuring out how to make it work. Uh, and I wanted to kind of address the money stress that people feel um, at every level. So you know the uh, the family that is um, you know trying to make ends meet, working um, you know at a poverty or, or level or just above it, um, all the way to you know the the uh, new college grad graduate who's just never made a budget. Um, and then those two income families that, uh, you know, they've always been able to make it work because they make a lot of money, but, uh, you know, because of a downturn or something like that, circumstances change and they don't know how to change with those circumstances. So I wanted to kind of, um, address the issues that cause financial stress, no matter what income level you're in. When we're talking, say, about that college student who never developed a budget, what are his or her specific stresses? Well, often um, the stresses are, you know, based on um, not knowing how to plan far enough ahead. So, um, you know, the specific stresses for college students, I mean, you see a lot of college students who are graduating without being able to find a job. And so, of course, that is incredibly stressful. Um, And then a lot of times the problem is we deal with stress in ways that is counter productive. So someone might, you know, graduate, not be able to find a job and be so stressed out that they engage in retail therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we call it retail therapy for a reason. You get a boost when you buy things. Um, and uh, the thing is, that is objectively the worst thing you can do if you don't have a job and you don't know what your income is going to be. And, uh, you know, you've got uh, plastic, you can put it on plastic and be like, well, 
I'll worry about it later. So, you know, that's the sort of thing where um, I, I want to try to dig into, you know, people's uh, stresses because we tend to think of money as being very simple dollars and cents. Um, you know, it's, it's math. So it should be black and white should be very easy, but money is much more than just math. There's the um, psychological component to it. There's the emotional component to it. So I want to help people kind of dig into those psychological and emotional components to figure out why they're doing what they're doing, um, and what needs they're trying to meet through these counterproductive, um, you know, issues that they're doing. And your book not only identifies the stresses, but also the solutions. If you have debt, what's the solution? You know, there's, is there anything new to add to this, to the solution? Um, well, and the thing with, uh, with financial, um, issues is it's a lot like, um, you know, the, the, um, types of advice you see about, dieting, you know, what you have to do is simple, but not easy. So, you know, to, to dig your way out of debt, what you have to do is simple, you know, um, spend less than you, uh, than you earn and send the excess to, to your debt until it's paid off. That's very simple. It is not easy. So what I want to do is try to help people find ways to make it easier on themselves to do that. So, you know, some of those things are like, what is it that makes you feel good that you, you can spend money on now? You know, obviously if it makes you feel good to buy a Porsche, um, every other year, that's not going to be a great idea. But if you kind of identify the little luxuries that um, that can you know keep you sustained in all the other austerity uh, and the ones that really do help. So, you know, for instance, um, I know a woman who um, gets a manicure every month. Um, it's just a little luxury. And being knowing that she's going to get this manicure every month helps her to um, be able to cut other expenses that don't matter as much to her, that don't feel as luxurious to her. So that's the sort of thing where if you, you really spend time and think about what do I value, what really fills me up and makes me feel good, that gives me the best bang for my buck, I can you know invest in that. And then it's a lot easier to cut the other things like lunches out or coffees or cable or the other things that don't fill me up as much. So the austerity doesn't feel quite so austere. So I like that. Start with what you love the deal, the, the, as they say, uh, non-negotiables. And then from there, you're feeling good (laughs) about your Mm -hmm. lifestyle as opposed to feeling like, oh, everything has to go. I have to eat tuna fish out of a can. Like (laughs) I did when I was in my twenties. Um, your previous book to this interestingly was about retirement and it seems like Mm -hmm. you're almost like taking a step back a little bit and saying, okay, there's retirement, but before we can really as the title of your book says, choose your retirement, we have to first kind of deal with the now and the present. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something um, uh, I, I notice a lot. We have this tendency to have kind of like binary thought processes about retirement. We think of it, look, there's two parts of life. There's work and then there's retirement. Um, and so, you know, in retirement, you'll finally be able to get to do the things that you love to do and everything will be wonderful and perfect and you can go golfing every day and, and all of that. Um, and there's, there's, a real problem with that kind of thought process. For one thing, um, you fall into the trap of, uh, of assuming it's going to be um, retirement charming, um, which is a, a term that I've borrowed from uh, Vicki Robin, who wrote um, um, 
your money or your life. She calls it job charming, where you you are expecting uh, something to take care of everything in your life. You know, you can finally be happy because you've reached retirement charming. And in her case, she talks about, you know, the job that will do everything for you. Um, but just as there's no prince charming, there's no retirement charming. You're not going to suddenly be a different person after you retire. You're going to have the same problems, the same things that make you sad, the same issues that you have during your life uh, while you're working. So I wanted to kind of look at how do you create a life that has purpose, that you value, that feels good, no matter where you are in your life, because whether you're working or retired, it's all your life and you deserve to feel satisfied with it, no matter where you are. How did you get into personal finance writing, Emily? I've known you now for several years and we just sort of accept that we're all these financial geeks and we just, you know, love talking about savings and, but for you, what was your foray into financial reporting and writing? Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of one of those, uh, I fell into it stories. Um, my, uh, my father was a, a financial planner, so I did grow up in the industry and I, I've always been a bit of a financial nerd. Like, you know, I remember him telling me when I was a small child, um, uh, the, that, uh, you should aim for a modest, uh, tax return every year or tax refund every year. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just stuck with me cause I've always been a bit of a financial nerd. Then in 2010, my husband and I moved while I was pregnant with our first child, um, I had been a high school teacher. Uh, and because we moved during the summer and the baby was, uh, was due in September, I knew I wasn't going to find a job teaching. So I started looking for some writing gigs that I could, I could do. I've always written, um, uh, on all kinds of different subjects. Uh, one of the first jobs that I, I landed was with ptmoney.com. Um, and, uh, he was just looking for someone who would be able to write about money. And I, you know, let him know that I am kind of just a general money nerd. I am good at research. Um, you know, I do have a little bit of background in, in the, uh, uh, financial industry. Uh, and, uh, that worked out really well. And, um, things kind of just continued to snowball from there. Um, uh, Philip Taylor, who's behind PT money, um, passed my name along to his friends and, you know, here it is seven years later and I'm a personal finance author. Uh, so it's, uh, it's been an odd, um, uh, career that I, I never intended or expected, but uh, I absolutely love. I, I've, I've always been very interested in um, the sociology and behavioral economics aspect of personal finance, like why we do the um, kind of insane and irrational things that we do. Um, and then that kind of is married to the fact that I've, I'm also just very interested in dollars and cents and investing and, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, taking care of money is something I've always been interested in. And so it just kind of uh, worked out perfectly for me to have this um, unexpected career. What would you say is your financial philosophy? What's your overarching money mantra, Emily? There's, there's two aspects to it. The first is to um, really figure out what you value. Um, if you figure out what you value, then you can have the life that you want. Um, you know, we have this tendency to believe that uh, you have to have all the money in the world. You know, you have to have, you know, millions of dollars to be able to live the life that you really want. Um, but you could live very, very well, live the life that you want with very little money, as long as you know what you value and you spend your money on the things that you value most. So that's the first part of it. The second part is to always do something today that you're, that you'll be glad you did tomorrow. Um, so always be thinking of yourself in the future and what you'll be glad to wake up to tomorrow. Um, because it's very easy to get so focused on the present and, you know, like, well, if I do this now, it'll feel good now, but you know, it's going to cause me a problem because I'll have a huge credit card bill. 
bill next month, or I'm going to be taking money out of my 401k or, you know, anything like that. So those are the sorts of things that, uh, um, that I, I really am, uh, hammer on is, is, is try to remember always that you are going to have to deal with your, your actions today. You talked about your childhood growing up and you had these influences such as your dad working in finance and you always had this sort of affinity for saving and money advice. But that begs the question then, do you think it's in your DNA or do you think that you've also picked up some interest just because of your environment? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I, uh, I, I've wondered about it uh, quite a bit because I am different from um, others in my family. Um, I mean, no one in my family is, you know, like bad with money or anything like that, but I'm the only one who, you know, would be sitting there counting all the pennies out of my, my piggy bank and just having a grand old time. Um, and so, and I do know that my great grandmother on my mother's side uh, was uh, really excellent with finance. And if she'd been born in a different time or if she'd been a man, she would have gone into the financial industry. But because she was a woman in the 30s and 40s, it was not open to her. But she had some of the same kind of habits that I do. Um, they, they talk about when she passed away in the mid 70s. Uh, they were going through all of her belongings and they found over $4,000 in various different purses that she kept because, you know, this purse was for gifts. So she had money set aside when there was a wedding or, or, um, uh, a baby was born to buy gifts. And this was set aside to give to the grandchildren. And so that's the sort of habit that I have that, you know, otherwise, if it weren't for knowing that my great, great grandmother was like that, I wouldn't know where it came from. Um, there have however also been, you know, some, uh, uh, nurture influences on me. Um, just in the, the right out of college, I, uh, I moved to Columbus, Ohio. I'm originally from uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and I did not have any family near me. Uh, and so I kind I was learning how to budget on the fly by myself. Um, and so some of the things that I did and learned then really influenced the way I view money. Your biggest memory of money as a kid growing up, I've so far heard about you you know, having these really interesting conversations with your dad, counting your pennies out of your piggy bank. But what was like a really pivotal experience that you had? Hmm. Um, when I was about six years old, I won a savings bond at a, um, uh, an elementary school fair. Uh, and I was so excited about the savings bond. I think it was for $25 and it was going to mature when I was about 15. <laughs> so, um, and so I was so excited about the savings bond. I was saying that I was going to, you know, uh, take my mom out to dinner with it and, uh, buy things for a homeless family and buy myself a bike. And so I had these grand schemes because I didn't know, have any sense of how much $25 was worth. And so that was, uh, that was something, you know, my, my parents thought it was hilarious that I, I, you know, was spending it in so many different ways. Um, but uh, I remember it, it kind of really stuck with me that their amusement and uh, my I, I had this understanding that I was missing something, but didn't really know what it was. And that that really stuck with me. It reminds me of like any college student who gets that first job out of college and you're making zero and then you're suddenly making, you know, thirty five, forty thousand dollars. And that's thirty five, forty thousand dollars more than you ever had. <laughs> so suddenly you're thinking, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get my own place. I'm going to get a car. I'm going to get new bags, shoes, clothes. 
No, you're really only <laughs> making about $25,000 after taxes. And then, you know, rent is about half of that. So yeah, it's just funny how it's perspective, right? And if you mm-hmm. don't have anything and then you suddenly have $25 savings bond, you're a rich person. Um, what did you end up doing with that money? You know, I think it ended up um, uh, going towards college. Um, you know, it wasn't much money, but I had that and that savings bonds were really big in the 80s, as I recall. Like that was something like grandparents would give every year. And so uh, when I went off to college, I had um, about a thousand dollars worth of savings bonds, including that one um, that uh, ended up being my my spending money for my first year of, uh, of college. Nice. I think I also got a savings bond from some rotary club when I was like in fourth grade. And I remember thinking I will be able to do nothing with this um, ever. (laughs) And I'm not even sure where it landed. Um, So that's the difference between you and me. But uh, (laughs) I should have done, I don't know. I I was like, but this is, I I was confused. I'm like, but is this really money? Like, I don't, I think I just had a hard time delaying gratification because, you know, you have to wait to redeem Mm-hmm. That money uh, did not work for me at age eight, whatever it was. Emily, tell me a little bit about your biggest failure. I, I There's got to be a failure in you, right? There has to be some mm-hmm. kind of financial regret, setback, whatever you want to call it, but that you learned a lot from as well. Well, I think uh, when I was 20, let's see, I was 22 when my, my grandmother on my mother's side passed away. Um, I, I'm one of uh, her six grandchildren and she had a provision in her will that each of the six grandchildren would get $10,000. Um, so I decided at the time, and as I mentioned, I've always been a writer. Um, I wanted to, I really wanted to be a novelist. So I decided I was going to live off of that $10,000 for as long as I could, um, and try to make a, make a go of it with writing. And I was thinking, um, at the time I was working part-time at a bookstore and I was also doing, um, um, uh, an AmeriCorps volunteer program. So it was going to be a thousand dollars a month for 10 months. I was going to be able to use this for, and, um, um, you know, be able to focus on writing instead of worrying about, uh, about making this money. And that was not a good use of the money. Um, it really, uh, $10,000 was a lot less money than I, than I realized. I mean, I could not live on a thousand a month. Um, and, uh, at the end of it, you know, I didn't have any more writing under my belt than I did before I started. I mean, I was already, you know, doing a little bit on a daily basis, but you know, it wasn't like, you know, all right, after 10 months, I've got a manuscript I can send out. So, um, I I do regret that, that use of the money because I feel like I could have done something a lot better with it. I could have put it aside for a down payment. I could have, um, I, I didn't have any investment in, um, in retirements or anything like that. Um, I, I'm, but I don't want to say I'm glad I did it, uh, but it taught me a very important lesson uh, about um, understanding just how far money goes. Well, you also got a book out of that time, right? <laughs> uh, so- no, I, I mean, I, I had a manuscript, um, you know, I've written a couple of, of novel manuscripts, but never, it didn't really give me the time that I needed to get it polished to where I felt like I could send it to, to agents or publishers. So, so not exactly. Um, <laughs> I think I would have been in the same place if I had just continued working the way I had been and, mm-hmm. and, uh, writing the way I had been. This is your fourth <laughs> book. How has the process evolved for you? Looking back at the first time you wrote a book versus this the last one, this most current one, um, what have you learned? 
Well, I, I really do love the process of writing a book. Um, that's something, you know, I've talked to other people at FinCon, other people in the personal finance sphere. Um, and I think that is, uh, um, not common <laughs> for people to really love the process. Um, so, um, I have learned that I really, uh, you know, similar to not realizing how far money goes, uh, it's really hard to know how much time you need to do something. Um, and so I'm, I really have been, uh, getting better at, um, figuring out how long I need to write a book. Um, and, uh, I think I'm going to always struggle with that because you always end up, uh, finding out things that you didn't realize you needed to know somewhere in the middle of the process. Um, there's, uh, there's always going to be a day where I've got two kids where somebody's sick on the most inconvenient day um, possible, that sort of thing. So, but I have, uh, I've really learned that I, I need to, um, take my time. I need to clear my schedule. Um, and I need to just kind of respect that the process is, is not quick or easy. Um, but it's, it's going to be something I just need to go through step by step. So many people are struggling to have enough for retirement. And that was the subject of your previous book. Can you give us some advice on, let's say we're in our thirties, forties, and we haven't really done a whole lot, uh, to save for retirement. What can we do besides just funneling more money to a 401k. I mean, that's obviously part of it. Um, you know, the, the main thing to do is, um, you know, well, it's the first thing to do is forgive yourself because we have this tendency, um, to really shame people for not starting earlier. Um, and I understand why that happens. Like you, you'll never hear me say that you shouldn't be saving money or that you shouldn't start as early as possible. Um, but because we, we beat the drum about, you know, start saving as soon as possible, you know, and, uh, if you can go back in time and save more, I mean, we, 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 we so emphasize that that people end up um, feeling like, well, it's too late now. I might as well not even start. Um, and then they get kind of paralyzed by it. So the first thing is to just forgive yourself, you know, like it's okay. I'm starting now. Um, you know, the past is past. Uh, it, it, it just is what it is. Deal with the situation as it is now, not as it might have been. So that's that's like the the first thing. Now again, like you don't forgive yourself to the point where like, and I don't need to start now either. No, it's more about like get to the mindset you need to be to be able to uh, actually put the money aside. So. Um, you know, and for a lot of people that, that mindset is uh, just the stumbling block of how many steps it takes to, you know, start putting money aside in your 401k. I mean, there are a lot of people who don't necessarily, um, put money aside just because, you know, they have to go down to HR and they need to get the forms and they need to do this and that and the other. So, you know, recognizing this is going to be a multi-step process and, you know, breaking it down into like, okay, on Monday, I'm going to go to HR by Tuesday, I'm going to do this by Wednesday, I'm going to do that, um, is, is also really important. And, uh, you know, making sure that you break down the steps and then automate as much as you possibly can. So you don't have to think about it is going to make this easier. And I'm all about making money decisions as easy as possible for yourself. That's a great way to tackle it. Like give yourself some measured steps, um, Mm -hmm. because certainly it can feel overwhelming. And I really also like the advice of not, making yourself feel worse than you probably already do feel and, and realizing that you're not alone. I mean, most Americans, sad to say, don't have 
anything save for mm-hmm. retirement. It's not even a little bit. They have nothing, which begs the question, is are we just going to reach a point where we don't even think about retirement anymore because it's just too hard to achieve this idea that you're going to be able to not work and have money to support yourself? Well, and the, something to remember is that the idea of retirement as we think of it is is relatively new concept. I mean, that um, our great grandparents, you know, did not think of retirement uh, um, as a possibility. You until like the uh, late um, late 1800s, early 1900s, you basically worked until you were so sick you couldn't work anymore. And then you went and lived with family. And that was it. Um, It's only really our parents and grandparents generation um, that uh, were able to um, have a retirement, which, you know, you work until you're about 65 or so, and then you get to enjoy yourself and have some leisure time. Uh, And the thing is, things have to change. I mean, the reason why that uh, um, was the way that retirement was viewed for so long is because we were able to have retirements like that. Um, The world is changing. The economy is changing. um, Our lifespans are getting longer. So uh, things are going to change and our expectations of retirement need to change with it. Uh, And as long as you are willing to roll with those punches and try to aim for that values-driven life at any point, it's going to be a lot easier to change with those expectations. Um, Because if you go into your working life with the expectation that someday I don't have to work anymore and I'm going to be able to do fun things that I always wanted to do and love, um, you're going to resent the uh, idea that retirement is no longer uh, an option the way it was for our parents and grandparents. Uh, So just being able to um, build the life that you love at all times is going to make it a lot easier to roll with those punches. That's right. It's so much of this is just shifting the way you think about these concepts, mm-hmm. whether it's debt or retirement or feeling fulfilled in their careers. Let's do some so many fill in the blanks. This is this part of the show where you finish a sentence that I spew out really fast. Okay. Okay. If I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is mm, buy a car. Oh yeah. Not so happy with your car right now. Um, my husband is an automotive engineer and so, and he and I kind of bonded over, uh, over, um, um, cool cars, you know, throughout our, our, uh, our lives together. Uh, right now I'm driving a 2002 Honda Accord. That's, uh, um, a, uh, automatic transmission and I miss, I miss manual transmission. I miss something a little more sporty, a little more fun. Uh, and, uh, I'm too practical, even though like we, we could p- potentially buy a new car for me. I'm too practical to do that. But if I won the lottery, I, I, I would want to go out and get something sporty and fun. And, and are you more uh, are you like a Tesla person? Are you a Lamborghini person? What kind of car? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I probably, cause again, my husband is, is an automotive engineer and he's kind of a car geek. Um, I'd probably get something, um, a vintage, um, like, uh, my, my dream car growing up was a, was a Porsche 911. Um, now I might want to be interested in, a. um, a BMW from the, uh, the early late eighties, early nineties in that really boxy era. Um, I just love the way they look. There you go. All right. So let's transition now to splurge splurges. If the one thing that I do splurge on, so this is not, if you win the million dollar, $10 million, whatever, you know, Powerball currently, even though I know you're probably more on the frugal side, but when you do splurge, I like to spend my money on office supplies. Really? <laughs> Yeah. So you're all staples, container store, Amazon, 
That's oh, your yeah. jam. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm a stationary geek, you know, so I love, uh, I love, um, really nice pens. Um, I, for some reason I cannot keep post-it notes to save my life and I'm always buying more. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I used to joke when I, when I was a high school, uh, English teacher that I, I did it for the school supplies. <laughs> I became a teacher just for the school supplies. I did it for the, um, uh, yeah, the supplies at closet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I, I love office supplies, organizational supplies those sorts of things. But yeah, and, and I, I spend kind of a ridiculous amount of money on them. <laughs> so what's, how do you, what, do, what is a good pen? Um, it's probably the most boring um, question I've ever asked in my life, but I'm curious, <laughs> what is like, um, uh, what is a good pen? I really like the kind that's, um, that have a uh, kind of a thickish black ink. So like they, they're Sharpie makes uh, fine point pens uh, that are basically like their markers with, uh, with very fine points. Uh-huh. Uh, those were my favorite until I found the uh, Micron um, pens. These were recommended to me by someone who does uh, scrapbooking, but the, the Micron Pigma uh, pens are the uh, same sort of thing where it's like a marker with a very fine point. Oh, I see. Uh, and they, they're just a, a joy to write with. And then I also, um, I, I draw as well. And so I, I, I like to draw with them. They, they just make a, a, a gorgeous line. Um, and just the, the ink is wonderful. <laughs> oh my God. You're, you're getting very excited talking about these <laughs> pens and I just looked them up. Um, there are six pieces for $8 and 32 cents on Amazon right now with your prime mm-hmm. subscription. And yeah, they look fun. Mm-hmm. All right. One thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is Oh, um, you know, probably our, our youngest is three years old and he goes to preschool at the, um, the JCC here in Milwaukee. Um, and, uh, every month, at least once a month, I think, uh, we should probably move him to a closer preschool. Uh, it's, it's 25 minutes away. Um, so it's, it's kind of a long commute to get him dropped off. Um, and it's, it's not cheap. It's, it's an expensive, um, um, prospect sending him because we, we are um, members of the JCC and then the, the cost of preschool itself is, is pretty expensive. We're spending more here for just him for preschool than we did for both boys for preschool in our previous uh, town. We were in Lafayette, Indiana. Um, but every, every single time it, it never fails the day that I, I get stuck in traffic or, or I have to pay the, the, the bill and I go, ah, oh, maybe we should move him a little closer someplace, someplace cheaper. He comes home having like a painted the Eiffel tower or having learned neurosurgery or something, or his, uh, his, his teacher, uh, he's got three teachers. One of them is a, is a young man named Ryan. His teacher will tell us something like, um, yeah, today he said, thank you for being my Ryan. <laughs> so, so, um, I, I, that really, that's a, an expense that's higher than, than we anticipated. Um, but I really do feel like it is absolutely worth it. You know, not just the, the, the education he gets there and the Jewish education he gets there, but the, the community that we, we are building, um, with his, his friends and, and being members of the JCC. It's true, right? It's not just the kids who benefit, but the parents and you really start to bond with the the community and it's hard to let that go. So I feel Mm -hmm. that the way with, uh, with Evan's preschool as well. Mm -hmm. Um, all right. The one thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is I wish I'd learned, um, uh, about uh, compound interest. Um, I mean, I did learn about it. I remember it being taught it specifically as a freshman in high school, but it didn't sink in. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I wish that had been made much more clear to me um, about uh, how compound interest is as close to magic as you're going to get in the real world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no one ever really at the time as a child thinks, someone, please tell me about compound interest already. <laughs> I mean, it's not, shouldn't all just be fun and games when I'm eight. But yeah, as an adult, you're like, maybe that would have, but how do you actually tell a young person what it is so that they care? Um, and that's that's the the question because I, when I learned about it in uh, my freshman year in high school, I remember my, my social studies teacher um, uh, used me and then a boy named Joe as the two examples, and um, you know did that that t- typical thing if I put aside a hundred dollars a month from the time I was twenty to the time I was forty, and Joe started saving at uh, forty, putting aside however much a month, um, I would still end up with more. Um, so you did that and that like stuck in my head very much so, but it still was just like, eh, I'll, I'll, I'll worry about it later. I'll worry about it later. It's, I think the trying to find a way to give it the urgency of like, no, worry about it now, worry about it now <laughs> would have been helpful. But I, to be honest, I have no idea how to make that, uh, something that, that really would connect with a kid because, uh, you know, I was the kid it would connect with. I was such a nerd and it didn't, didn't, yeah. Uh, so there you go. Maybe it's just something you aren't meant to learn when you're alone. Maybe. <laughs> it's, like, it's just supposed to be something you learn after you get your college diploma. Um, all right, Emily. Last but not least, I'm Emily Guy Birkin. I'm so money because. Oh, uh, I'm so money because I know how to uh, use my money so that it makes me feel good without having to stress about it. That's right. And you've written a whole book about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Congratulations. And so glad to have you on the show. Looking forward to seeing you at the upcoming FinCon. For those Thank of you, you who don't know what we're talking about, that's the annual gathering of financial bloggers and writers and general money nerds. Uh, looking forward to seeing everybody there, especially you, Emily. Thanks so much and have a great rest of your spring. Well, Thank you. Thanks so much to Emily Guy Birkin. Her website is emilyguybirkin.com. She's also on Twitter at Emily Guy Birkin. That's easy to remember. If you missed any of this, be sure to check out somoneypodcast.com. And if you have a question for me, click on Ask Farnoosh at the top right corner, type in your question or send in a voicemail, and we will include it in an upcoming Friday episode of Ask Farnoosh. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money. Money.